After the death of an undocumented Guatemalan girl, politicians returned to tour what was once called a temporary tent camp at Tornillo. The story today on the Texas Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. With support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm David Brown. A Trump administration proposal to deport certain Vietnamese immigrants sends shockwaves through parts of Texas, home to some of the largest Vietnamese communities in the U.S. Also, the year that was in energy, plus a tumultuous year in review from the previous century, and why a Texas museum's turning a spotlight on it. All those stories, plus the changing face of Texas politics, and a whole lot more. Coming up today on the Texas Standard, and it all gets started right after this. No matter where you are, it's Texas Standard Time on this 17th day of December. Hope your Monday's been a good one so far. Thanks for spending a bit of it with us. I'm David Brown. You know, it seems to be happening more frequently these days for some reason. Along comes a Friday, we're off the air, many news outlets have gone to bed for the weekend, and boom, a big story this time. From a federal courtroom in Fort Worth, a ruling that the Affordable Care Act, a.k.a. Obamacare, is unconstitutional. More on this story a little later in the broadcast. You want to stay tuned. A tweet over the weekend caught the attention of producers. This one from Joaquin Castro, the congressman based in San Antonio. On Tuesday, he says the Congressional Hispanic Caucus will lead a delegation to Lordsburg Station in Lordsburg, New Mexico, to investigate the circumstances surrounding the death of a seven-year-old Guatemalan girl. According to the story first reported by the Washington Post, the girl died of dehydration and septic shock last week in El Paso, a few hours after she was taken into custody by Border Patrol after crossing illegally with her father into the U.S. This incident has once again turned the spotlight on the U.S.-Mexico border in a so-called tent city in Tornillo, Texas, a facility the federal government set up in June to house migrant children. The Tornillo site was supposed to be temporary, but it's continued to expand. Over the weekend, a congressional delegation toured the site and called on the government to shut it down. KRWG's Mallory Falk reports. Five lawmakers from as many states spent about an hour in the tent facility, poking their heads into sleeping quarters, seeing where the children housed here eat and play soccer. But access ended there. Yeah, we wanted to talk with the young people here. Senator Maisie Hirono of Hawaii addressed the press and a few dozen protesters immediately after the tour. And when I asked why we couldn't talk to them, I was told that we shouldn't interrupt their schedules. And I said, there's probably a word for that, it's called BS. Tornillo currently houses about 2,700 children ages 13 to 17. That's up from a few hundred when the facility opened in June. And as of November, it's cost taxpayers $144 million. This is a great deal for the contractor, a terrible deal for the kids who are trapped inside, and an awful deal for, for the U.S. taxpayer. That's Congressman Beto O'Rourke, who led the delegation's Tornillo visit. The, the contractor himself said that this is no permanent place for kids. These are soft-sided tents. That are, that are meant for disaster recovery. These are the tents that are deployed after Hurricane Harvey. Yet some children have now spent nearly half a year living in these tents. But they could be staying at the Ritz-Carlton and it wouldn't be right if they weren't with their families. So why have some children been stuck here for so long? And why does the facility keep expanding? Senator Hirono blames a fingerprint policy that went into effect last summer. 
When a sponsor steps forward to take in a migrant child, the government now fingerprints everyone in that sponsor's house and shares the information with Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE. That is doing two things. One, it's creating tremendous delays in approving these sponsors. The same thing is I think it has a chilling effect on sponsors coming forward because this information, and many of the sponsors are undocumented, is shared with ICE, and what ICE does is deport people. Between July and November, ICE arrested 170 undocumented immigrants who came forward to sponsor children. The vast majority had no criminal record. Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon also took part in the tour. He says the fingerprinting policy doesn't just create a sense of fear. It creates a bottleneck for families who do come forward. Merkley says, according to BCFS, the contractor running the Torneo facility. Many of these kids have a sponsor who has who have already gone through the background checks, 1,300. And for some reason, in the bureaucracy of the Trump administration, they are slow walking, completing that work, leaving these kids stranded here. Congressman O'Rourke says the contractor running the encampment could put pressure on the Trump administration to end this policy. BCFS, a San Antonio-based nonprofit, has a contract with the federal government through December 31st. I've asked them not to renew the contract unless ICE does away uh, with the fingerprint background checks that are, that are then used to deport people from mixed immigration status families. Other lawmakers on the tour said they would push for more oversight of Torneo by calling for a congressional hearing on conditions at the facility and supporting a bill that would grant lawmakers access to migrant shelters on 24 hours notice. And O'Rourke urged citizens to keep raising the alarm. The public pressure that you brought to bear after Father's Day that ended the practice of family separation, we need that same pressure again brought to bear on this administration to close down Torneo. For now, though, it doesn't look like the number of kids living here will shrink anytime soon. Some community members plan to sing Christmas carols outside the Torneo facility next week. They hope their voices carry so the children inside can hear them. In El Paso, I'm Mallory Falk. The Lone Star State's home to some of the largest Vietnamese communities in the U.S., in large part a legacy of U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War. Well, now published reports indicate that the Trump administration is restarting efforts to deport certain Vietnamese immigrants, including many who fled violence during that war. The team that broke the story includes Krishnadev Kalamur. He is staff writer at The Atlantic. He covers global news there. Krishnadev, welcome to the Texas Standard. Pleasure. Who exactly are the immigrants that would be uh, uh, subject to this policy change, and why is the administration targeting them? Uh, to, to answer that question, I'm going to back up a little bit. The, uh, the United States signed a deal with Vietnam in 2008 that basically dealt with, among other things, the deportation of uh, criminal aliens. These are uh, Vietnamese nationals in the U.S. who are not U.S. citizens, mm-hmm. but who had a criminal record. Now, uh, the Vietnamese had been resistant to taking back their citizens, but under the deal, which took about 10 years to negotiate, they finally agreed that they would take back anyone who came to the U.S. after July 12, 1995. Mm. That's the date when the U.S. and Vietnam uh, agreed to set up diplomatic relations. 
Uh, but those who came before that date, the Vietnamese were far more resistant to take, taking them back, primarily because most of those people who did come here were from South Vietnam, and I think they saw them as perhaps uh, politically tainted. I see. Uh, so uh, what exactly has changed from that earlier uh, uh, conversation? Uh, I'm not sure what has changed. What has changed has is basically that the Trump administration has made it very clear that it wants to deport criminal aliens, basically immigrants to this country who are not U.S. citizens, mm-hmm. uh, anyone of the criminal record. And they have managed to send back quite a few people from places like Cambodia and Laos. Uh, but because of this agreement with, the, with Vietnam in 2008, it was unable to send back... Uh, Vietnamese nationals who were convicted of crimes in the U.S. What does this mean for Vietnamese communities in the United States? As I'm sure you're aware, Houston is like the third largest in the country. Uh, Arlington, Texas is the 10th largest, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I think it's going to have pretty profound consequences. Uh, I've been speaking to some advocacy groups who uh, work on uh, work with the Vietnamese community. And what what they have told me is, uh, essentially, a lot of these people who have been convicted, they came as young people to the United States, they, uh, they, uh, they were settled in pretty depressed communities, they committed crimes, they were sentenced to prison, they served their time and they came out. Uh, so they've done their time in, in, in the words of the advocates. Uh, and, you know, many of them have are married to American citizens and have American citizen children. Uh, they just are not U.S. citizens. So it's going to have a an impact uh, that, uh, that, that could hurt Vietnamese families in the United States, Vietnamese-American families specifically. Uh, the number that the DHS gives us is about uh, 5,000 people who would be immediately... Uh, eligible for deportation should this rule change occur. Vietnamese community groups uh, say that the number is closer to nine uh, 9,000 people. You referred to this as a rule change, and I'm curious. Rule changes typically have to go through a process of publication and, and public comment and that sort of thing. Is this something that the administration can act on unilaterally, or does it, in fact, uh, is it open to uh, to public comment? Uh, so I think because immigration is falls under the federal jurisdiction, most courts have recently sided with the executive branch's uh, uh, purview over that matter. I, I think uh, it's a, right now it's a case of negotiations between the United States and Vietnam, the governments of these two countries, uh, in which the U.S. is hoping to persuade Vietnam to uh, agree to the rule change to take back these people. And so uh, what sort of pushback might there be? Is there is there a, an opening for a uh, legal challenge to this, or, or does the policy have to take, take uh, effect before you can do that? So I think the administration had begun last year deporting some, some of these folks. I think they'd managed to deport about a dozen or so Vietnamese, Vietnamese nationals back to Vietnam, and along with Cambodians and citizens of countries in other places. But what ended up happening was there was a class action lawsuit that was filed against the administration. And because of the public pressure, it backed off. And it seems to have revived those efforts uh, this month. Krishnev Kalamur is staff writer at The Atlantic covering global news. And he uh, helped break this story for The Atlantic. Uh, Krishnadev, thanks so much for speaking with us on The Standard. My pleasure.
Joining us once again in the Texas Standard Studios, our social media editor, Wells Dunbar. Hi, David. A federal judge in Fort Worth ruled the Affordable Care Act unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. Judge Reed O'Connor ruled that without the tax penalty incurred on those that don't enroll, the entirety of the law known as Obamacare is illegal. Mm -hmm. It's very important to note here, of course, that despite the ruling, the Affordable Care Act is still in effect for now, pending more legal wrangling. And we will have more in the news roundup later in the show. Mm -hmm. So what's next for the health care law and the federal marketplace? Via Twitter, Tyler Talbert predicts that the decision will be almost immediately stayed. The Fifth Circuit will reverse the decision, and then the Supreme Court won't even grant review. He Boy. seems to feel that legal scholars are in agreement, considering that or rather, the Supreme Court has basically saved Obamacare twice already. Yeah. And on our Facebook page, Kay Garth says, A conservative judge for the Northern District of Texas and Bush appointee offers his ruling on a lawsuit filed by 18 Republican state attorneys general and two Republican governors led by Tea Party conservative Attorney General Ken Paxton. Anyone notice a pattern here talking about all the Republican opposition to Obamacare? Sounds you like know, it. Those are some of the legal issues we're hearing from people about, David. We're also hearing lots, lots more from people about Obamacare and healthcare generally and how this ruling could impact them. Lots of really interesting stuff on our Facebook page. Yeah. So I'll be back with more reactions later in the show. Well, Texas, what's your story? We would love to hear about it. You can tweet us at Texas Standard or go more long form by visiting us on Facebook. Wells Dunbar is looking for your comments. He's going to be back with us in 35 or so here on The Standard. Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at savenowforcollege.org. Hey, it's the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. It's a story we're seeing in big cities statewide. Growing population causing major mobility problems in some of its suburbs where the roads just aren't equipped to handle a huge bulk of traffic. Sound familiar? Any fix involves not just new designs and getting political consensus, but coming up with the cash to pay for those changes. Well, Gail DeLauder offers a case in point. Houston's northernmost neighborhood, where she says you have a road that was basically built for another day and time. One place you see this is on North Park Drive in Kingwood. It's a busy road that runs east to west and carries traffic to I-69. Well, the roadway is very inadequate for, I think, just one way in and one way out on two lanes. We stopped along North Park to chat with Michael Wagner. He's a manager at Warren's Gardens, a landscaping and garden supply company. In front of the business, there are two lanes in each direction. There's also a canal in the middle with intermittent spots to make a U-turn. It bogs all the way down to the light at Russell Palmer, so you can have several hundred cars in a, in a row, and as we add more businesses, more traffic. Along with the limited lane capacity, Wagner says there's another problem. That's a stoplight at North Park and Loop 494. It's right next to a busy railroad track. And when people are trying to turn left, they, they completely block one lane all the way back. So we eliminate down to one lane at that time. So if we have an accident or any kind of things, it really stacks up. How do you move 75,000 people in and out of an area on two four-lane drives? That's a tough one. Houston City Councilman Dave Martin says a North Park improvement project should have been done a long time ago. And it's not just a heavy volume of traffic that causes problems. Martin points out that after Harvey, Kingwood residents were basically stranded because a road flooded. As the mayor says, you have to build for success. 
So you have to elevate the highway so that in the event of a next Harvey or, or the event of a next Ike, we'll have the ability to use North Park as an evacuation route because it won't flood. So what do you do to fix it? Right now, there are two projects being planned along North Park. That includes elevating the road above the 500-year floodplain. The canal will be covered up, so two lanes could be added in each direction. Planners also want to build an overpass that would carry traffic over Loop 494 and the railroad tracks. The two projects are expected to cost over $80 million. Some of that money will come from the city, but much of it will come from the Lake Houston Tax Increment Reinvestment Zone, or TERS. That's a special zone that sets aside tax increments to fund redevelopment. But the thing is, the term of the TERS is expiring in less than a decade. Stan Sarman is TERS chairman. We're working with city council to get approval to extend the life of the TERS. We hope to have that approved through city council, uh, if not here in December, hopefully in January. Sarman explains that a 20-year extension is crucial so the TERS can get funding for the work. It would give us 30 more years to be able to, to sell some bonds and then to pay them off. The TERS out here pays off bonds or loans with the increment it obtains from the areas that were developed within the TERS boundary. Meanwhile, back at Warren's Gardens on North Park, Michael Wagner says as the amount of traffic continues to grow, that work can't come soon enough. Well, I'm not an engineer or a traffic analysis type person, but I think if we just had more lanes that we could carry the traffic a little quicker, and especially the intersection at 494 and North Park. Councilmember Martin is hoping they can get funding in place to actually start construction on North Park late next year. In Houston, I'm Gail DeLauder. Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. Well, as you are likely aware, 2018 is drawing to a close, and what a year it's been for the energy industry. Heightening geopolitical tensions, unpredictable gas prices here at home, a whole lot's happened since the start of this year. Here for a refresher, Energy Insider Matt Smith, Director of Commodity Research at Clipper Data. The refreshing Matt. Welcome back to the Texas Standard. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thanks, David. Uh, so how about we do something a bit different today? Let's take a look at the year in energy news through the lens of pop culture. What you say? Let's give it a go. All right. Uh, so <laughs> maybe we should begin with a movie. I uh, got one that uh, you might uh, recommend. Uh, Infinity Wars. It's a simple spell, but quite unbreakable. Then I'll take it off your corpse. And the reason I bring that up is because we're seemingly in this eternal battle in the oil market uh, where you've got OPEC, who's who's trying to keep oil prices in the sweet spot. Mm -hmm. They've basically had this production cut deal running since early 2017. We get to mid-2018, and they unwind it because they feel like they've had this success. And then suddenly prices drop by, you know, 25, 30 uh percent. -huh. And then suddenly, just two weeks ago again, they've announced uh, uh, another production cut deal. So Infinity Wars trying to battle away and uh, and keep these prices eternally at that sweet spot. Yeah. And that means there's going to be a sequel, you know. So uh, <laughs> this is the, <laughs> exactly. the never ending story, really, is what we're talking about here. Uh, true, true. Maybe we can move on to music. Uh, you, you up for that? Yes. All okay. right. What about what about what about a hit album? Uh, you got anything in mind? 
Okay, so the the album I've got is Ariana Grande's Sweetener. Say more, Ariana Grande's Sweetener. How 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 does what does that have to do with energy? Oh, okay, so um, although the recent vicious sell-off in prices is going to hurt Texas and more than anywhere else, actually, mm-hmm. given uh, its exposure to the oil industry. Uh, there is the silver lining coming through via retail gasoline prices. So in Texas, uh, retail gasoline prices have dropped nearly 25% since early October and are currently just above $2 a gallon uh, and are likely to drop through that level uh, in the coming days. Uh, we've actually seen retail sales data across the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, just came out last Friday, has been way better than expected. So what what's happened really is because the, the gasoline price has dropped so much, people are feeling that much more wealthy. And so they're going out. And so uh, really, you should expect a nicer Christmas present than ah. you were expecting to get previously. I see what you're saying here. You're saying that there is something of a silver lining, hence the sweetener. That's uh, what you're suggesting. Exactly. Yeah. Um, maybe we should wrap this up with a song. Got a favorite from this year that might sort of uh, uh, reverberate uh, with uh, what's happening in energy? Absolutely. So a great song by Childish Gambino. Uh, this is America. Yeah. Which seems appropriate for, for energy uh, because this is the year in America where we saw uh, U.S. oil production ramp up to a record now the largest oil producer in the world we started the year around 10 million barrels a day in terms of production now it's blasted through 11 and a half million barrels a day so uh really pushing on there uh, we've also seen uh, record oil exports as well kicking around three million barrels a day uh, we've seen lng exports ramping up too and so really this is this has been the year for for records i suppose in the oil industry yeah, records uh, of, of two different sorts, I suppose you could say, uh, since we were talk- talking about Childish Gambino, after all, and I think I did see some <laughs> vinyl down at the Barnes & Noble. Matt Smith is Director of Commodity Research for Clipper Data. Matt, happy holidays, and uh, we'll see you in the new year. Same to you, sir. Thank you. Support comes from Texas Children's Hospital, focused on outcomes and care, and providing treatment to kids in the Lone Star State and beyond for more than 60 years. Texas Children's Hospital, personalized care for every child. More at texaschildrens.org. From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogel with a roundup of news from across the state. Texas groups that advocate for access to health coverage are concerned about a Fort Worth judge's ruling on the Affordable Care Act. U.S. District Judge Reed O'Connor said this past Friday that the ACA, also known as Obamacare, is unconstitutional. Brian Sasser is with the Episcopal Health Foundation in Houston, a group that's done in-depth research on the uninsured population in Texas, which is the largest in the country. He says this ruling could affect about a million Texans who get their health coverage through the ACA marketplace. So it kind of puts a million people, more than a million Texans, kind of uncertain about the future of something that they depend on to help them have affordable access to care. And Sasser adds it's not clear what would take its place. If this isn't the answer, then what do Texas policymakers see as the answer? Because the, the bottom line is a million people right now in Texas depend on the Affordable Care Act for their health insurance. If that goes away, what's next? 
Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton filed this lawsuit challenging the ACA, leading a group of fellow Republican state attorneys general and two Republican governors. They argued the entire law should be struck down after Congress zeroed out the tax penalty for the individual mandate that requires people to buy health insurance. Judge O'Connor agreed, but despite his ruling, the law remains in effect for now. Stacey Pogue points out that if the ACA is ultimately overturned, it will impact more than just those who get coverage through the marketplace. She's with the Center for Public Policy Priorities a progressive think tank in Austin. It affects most Americans. So, you know, in Texas, one out of every four of us has a pre-existing condition like asthma or diabetes or cancer, and we could be turned down or charged more um, for insurance, but for the ACA. So we would lose those protections. This case is likely to end up back at the Supreme Court, which has upheld the ACA twice. The state of Texas put 13 inmates to death this year, the most since 2015. But while there was an increase in executions, the number of new death sentences handed down by jury stayed in the single digits for a total of seven. That's according to a report the Texas Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty released at the end of last week. Kristen Hule heads the statewide advocacy group. She says one reason for the disparity between executions and new death sentences is that many inmates on death row were sentenced 15 to 20 years ago. Executions really reflect the past use of the death penalty, whereas the new death sentences reflect the current political climate on the death penalty. The number of death sentences began dropping in part due to the introduction of life without parole in Texas in 2005. Of the seven men sentenced to death this year, all are people of color. That's Look at News from across the state. I'm Becky Fogel for the Texas Standard. Support for these Texas Standard headlines comes from the law firm of Baron Adler Clough and Odo, handling eminent domain and condemnation cases throughout Texas, protecting private property rights for over 30 years. BaronAdler.com. 33 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. Things are about to change for Texas's delegation to the U.S. House of Representatives. Indeed, it's going to be a major makeover in the coming year. Nine Texans are leaving the House, and we've asked each of them to speak with us here at the Texas Standard, looking back on their time in office. Today, we're talking with Congressman Ted Poe. He's a Republican from the Houston area. Representative Poe, welcome to the Texas Standard. Thank you, David. You know, I was thinking about the many hats that you have worn over the years. You have uh, you served in the Air Force. Uh, you served on the bench. In fact, I believe your, your uh, friends still call you Judge Poe, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, and then you have this title of congressman. Now that you're leaving Capitol Hill, which is your favorite title? <laughs> Texan is my favorite title. <laughs> but uh, I, I've, been, I've enjoyed being in public service. Um, I, I've been in public service all my life. My grandmother told me to be, so that's why I uh, taught school, spent time in the Air Force Reserves, a prosecutor, judge, and now in Congress. But I, I enjoyed each of them. All of those roles are different. Uh, But I guess I especially like being a judge uh, in Houston the most. Why are you leaving? It's uh, it's time to leave for a couple of reasons. One, I don't think that uh, members of Congress, well, especially me, uh, should make a career out of being in Congress. Uh, So uh, I, uh, after 14 years, I felt like I've accomplished some things I wanted to accomplish. And it's time uh, to go back to Texas. on a permanent basis. You know, I'm curious, since you've, since you've had some experience there on Capitol Hill, has anything changed uh, since you started back in, what would it have been, 2004, 2005, I guess? Yes, I think things have changed. I think there is uh, less um, 
camaraderie between members of Congress. People don't seem to get along with each other like I think the process in needs, and uh, not necessarily agreeing, uh, but just the uh, civility, I think, has uh, diminished uh, uh, in the United States Congress. Why do you think that is? Well, uh, it, I'm not sure of the real, the real reason. Uh, however, it seems to me that part of the reason is that the folks in the community that elect us, mm-hmm. um, they have a tendency now to elect people in both parties, in the primaries, with the understanding that they will not be uh, working with the other side. I think that's a trend in our political uh, environment in both parties, is to elect folks uh, uh, who have a very specific agenda, and that does not include working with the other side. And I believe very strongly that the best legislation that is passed out of the United States Congress is bipartisan legislation. I'm, I'm wondering if, in a way, that lack of collegiality, which you know you've noticed has changed over the, did it make, had, did it make uh, being a congressman unpleasant? Unpleasant wouldn't be the right word. It just made it, it, it makes it more difficult for members of Congress to do the people's work when there is a lack of civility, when you're dealing with an environment where it is, um, hostile is not the right word, but it's uh, tense. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so it's hard to get things uh, accomplished that are for the good of the American public. It just makes it more difficult. Um, well, you've been awfully generous uh, with your time, Congressman. I, I want to tell you, uh, I sure do appreciate it. I, I have to ask before we let you go, though, because I know you announced back in July of 2016 you'd been diagnosed with leukemia and you'd be seeking some treatment. How is that going? How is your health right now? And, and, and was that a factor in your decision to step away from uh, from Congress? My health is good. Uh, leukemia is a disease that you, you never get rid of, so I still, you know, I have it. But it's it's all it's under control, and I take uh, my uh, chemo medicine uh, pills every day, and I, so I'm in good I'm in good health. Uh, as far as whether or not that had anything to do with it, no, it really didn't. There are many factors, but one factor was uh, when I got elected to Congress, my four our four kids were single, and now they're all married, and I have 12 grandkids, mm-hmm. and they all live in Texas, as they should. <laughs> and, I mean, that's one of the rules. They have to live in Texas. So, so that, that changes your perspective. It uh, changes my perspective. Well, welcome back to Texas, uh, Congressman, uh, Judge, uh, Poe. Uh, we certainly do, we d- certainly do appreciate you taking time to, to speak with us on the Texas Standard. All the very best. Okay, thank you a lot. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas CASA, advocating for a safe and positive future for all Texas children in the child protection system. Volunteer information at becomeacasa.org. Every child has a chance. It's you.
Hey, you got it tuned to the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. You're likely to hear a lot of folks on the news talking about how many days are left in 2018. And here, too, we're working on our year-in-review episode. You know, best-of lists have become a part of the holiday season. We all know the drill. But this also is an occasion to look back at another tumultuous year that ended long ago, 50 years ago, to be precise. Many a scholar and journalist have tried to draw some long-term lessons from the events of 1968, and the experts at the Dolph Briscoe Center for American History at the University of Texas at Austin are no exception in this regard, though their public presentation of those events is rather exceptional. A month-by-month documentation online and at the center, including thousands of documents, photos, and other materials that bring 68 back to life. Ben Wright is Associate Director for Communication at the Briscoe Center. Ben, thanks for stopping by the Texas Standard Studios. Good to see you. You too. This is broken down uh, in this exhibit sort of month-by-month, as I understand it. Right. It it was a year, I mean, so much has been said about it, uh, but it's, you know, you pull back and you look at that year that was in 68, which began in a rather um, grim way and ended somewhat optimistically. Well, what was it uh, about uh, the Tet Offensive that made you want to focus on that for January? Um, if you look at 1968, something's happening each month. It's just a hammer blow after a hammer blow. Mm-hmm. And But Vietnam kind of is a thread that runs throughout the whole year, as is politics, yeah. uh, and and actually the intersection of those two things. But what we see in January is the, is the in late January, is the Tet Offensive, is this surprise uh, North Vietnamese attack on South Vietnam that the U.S. Uh, is, is right there in the middle of, that U.S. troops are right there in the middle of. And um, this is uh, documented and reported at the time. This is uh, on the airwaves, it's in the it's on the front page and it's on primetime television. Yeah, and it's hard to sort of uh, understate or it's hard to sort of overstate just how significant this was because as as uh, you document in this exhibit, it would lead ultimately to just a couple of months later the 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 decision by the American president not to seek another term in office. Uh, of course, we're talking about Texan Lyndon Baines Johnson. Right. And, uh, you know, all uh, accounts seem to suggest that Johnson had been mulling this over for a while. Mm-hmm. But yes, there's definitely, again, this, this giant connection with Vietnam. You know, interestingly, Vietnam becomes a metaphor in that well the, the photographs especially do we it's it's actually it's it's not this colossal defeat for the american and south the vietnamese forces but you get that picture that eddie adams picture a uh, saigon execution and yeah, this becomes right. a metaphor for the unjustness and the brutality of the war and, and and obviously lbj is is wrapped up in that whether he wants to be or not and he makes the decision not to run um he thinks this is going to help in vietnam he thinks this is going to help the democrat party's prospects in, 19, in the general election, uh, but things turn out very differently. Uh, 1968 is also remembered as a year of assassinations. Uh, of course, right. there was this uh, horrible incident in April. I think uh, those who were alive at the time remember where they were when they heard that Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated. Yes, so Martin Luther King's assassination and Robert Kennedy's assassination. And this is sort of, these these two assassinations are are in many ways the, the uh, the fulcrum of the year. It um, it leads to a disillusionment among minority communities, obviously, uh, and, and then RFK leads to a massive disillusionment among young Americans of all stripes. And there's this idea that this just uh, this um, that foul play in, in in the fight between progress and foul play, foul play is winning. Yeah, it's it's almost, and I've heard people discuss this. It's that. 
uh, it seems as if the, the the United States and perhaps the world is, is sort of spinning out of control. At there's some there's point. definitely that sense. Um, I think Whitcover, Jules Whitcover, who is a reporter on the ground, put it best when he talks about this is this is a time when American sensitivities are assaulted beyond all bearing, and um, but also a time when the hopes of millions of people are are assaulted and defeated as well. And something something vital dies. He wrote a book about this called um, The Year the Dream Died. We actually have the archives of of his his journalism and his book. And and so this this idea that something vital, some sort of post World War Two dream of a of an America that takes care of its problems at home and takes care of the world abroad that this this, that that this breaks apart that this yeah. is exposed you know the the emperor has no clothes and yet and yet the the year 1968 ends on a wildly optimistic note this yeah. is the uh, this is a launch that would really become the first time that mankind had managed to get out of earth's orbit literally and uh Head for the moon. Right. And again, you see the same sorts of things that you happen with the bad news. The good news ends up on the airwaves. It ends up on the front page and ends up in, on on people's TV screens, except rather than assassinations or protests um, or sort of beleaguered, uh, you know, politicians, you see uh, the world's first selfie. You see uh, the, you know, the, 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 the big sh- blue marble, the, right. right? The big yeah. blue marble yeah. in the sky. And it is this moment Cronkite talks about, you know, how the country had been pretty down at that point, And yet, you know, it made this great impression that, you know, how silly it is that we can't yeah. get along in, in this little lifeboat of ours, as he puts it. Yeah. Well, Walter Cronkite, you're talking about the CBS news anchorman and the, and the, the moment was the launch of the Apollo 8 mission. Right. Right. Um, Frank Berman, one of the astronauts, actually talks about a telegram he gets that says, congratulations, you boys saved 1968. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the exhibit. It's going to continue through the end of uh, uh, 2018, is my understanding. That, that's right. Um, if, you, if you have a chance before the end of the semester, pop by the Briscoe Center or over by the LBJ Library, and um, and you'll be able to see uh, ex- um, reporters, notebooks, photographs, constituent letters, speech drafts, that sort of thing that walk you through the trials and tribulations of the year. There's been so much said about uh, uh, 50 years since 1968. Is there anything in particular you think perhaps we need to, as the as our year comes to an end, reflect on? I mean, there obviously have been many parallels, in at least in terms of the kind of the mood and the sense that there's a good bit of chaos going on today. Yeah, I think there's this, there was a sense in 1968 of decline, of the system being broken, and and one of the ways this manifests in the future is this is sort of escapism. You know, we're talking, we, we, we the next stage of the culture is Bowie and Space Oddity yeah, and, yeah. and, you know, 70s sci-fi. And so I guess the question we have is, do we, uh, do we escape these problems and stay in our little tribes or do we try and find some common ground and fix the system together? Ben Wright is Associate Director for Communication at UT Austin's Briscoe Center for American History. The Briscoe has an exhibit on 1968 on display that, as we were saying, runs through the end of the year. You can check out the companion website at our website, texastandard.org. We'll have a link there, and uh, those pictures will be there in perpetuity, I'm told. Ben, uh, great to talk with you. Thanks so much for stopping by. You're most welcome. You know something, it's never too late to get that college degree. Just ask 84-year-old North Texas resident Janet Fine. Seven years after retiring from her secretarial job at age 77, Fine graduates with her bachelor's degree in sociology this week 
from UT Dallas. The AP reporting fine took advantage of a state program that lets people 65 and older take up to six credit hours per semester for free. Fine said she chose to pursue her degree because she didn't have enough to do in retirement, adding that bingo wasn't up to her speed. Coming up on 49 minutes past the hour. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, partnering with SAP to deliver business by design supply chain solutions for cost transparency and process integration in mid-market companies. More at softwareaspromised.com. Support comes from Texas Oncology, a network of more than 420 physicians who deliver cancer-fighting treatments and compassionate care to 50,000 new cancer patients each year. More at texasoncology.com. This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Enough with the millennial bashing, wrote Forbes magazine earlier this year. And who could blame millennials for feeling picked on? While some claim it's mostly done in fun, there's a price to be paid, too. While some waste their time blaming an entire generation for their woes, they just might be blind to the fact that the generation roughly between 22 and 37 years of age is about to take over in an inevitable shift of political power. And as Brooke Schoberg reports, Texas appears to be prime territory for this change. The ballots Texans voted on this November listed several statewide millennial candidates, but there were even more in local races. Zachary Price ran for the District 4 seat of the Austin Independent School District's Board of Trustees. He says there was a lot of contention about his age. Yes, I, I am a good amount younger than the rest of the candidates for across all positions. But it also, you know, reflects the the type of voice that I can bring in. I, I have sat in an Austin ISD classroom. That's why I'm talking about issues like mental health, like, like sexual assault, because those are the issues really impacting students. Price lost his race for the Austin School District Board of Trustees to incumbent Kristen Ashey. But it likely won't be the end for him with politics. He says the stereotypes associated with his generation aren't always accurate. I've never actually seen avocado toast before. Um, I have no idea what it would even look like. I think there are a lot of people in this country who are looking for a different voice. The experience we've got right now has gotten us to the position we are as a country, as a state, and as a school board, um, and that's not helping anybody. Andrew Morris was another millennial on the ballot this November. He's a 33-year-old British transplant who found himself running for a seat in the Texas House as a means of getting involved in his community. We need to bring that fresh leadership in. We need to have that um, turnover of leadership so that millennials can feel like they are being represented, that their voices are being heard. Um, I want millennials to ruin this concept of pay-to-play politics that has been around for far too long. Morris says his work on campaigns and with activist groups led him to what he called the next logical step, running for office. He says politics needs the perspective and ideas offered by his generation. I've always been involved in politics. Even before I was a citizen, I was getting involved with trying to register Texans to vote. I was trying to encourage people to vote, to get out the vote. And it's something that is from a someone who wants to vote but can't vote. It, there's nothing more infuriating than uh, talking with my uh, friends, my family, who were kind of ambivalent about voting. And I was just trying to impress on them. You have no idea what a precious commodity voting is. 
Morris lost his race in Texas House District 64 in Denton to incumbent Lynn Stuckey. But Erin Sweener wasn't facing an incumbent in House District 45, southwest of Austin. She won her race while eight months pregnant. Sweener says her status as a millennial woman made her campaign experience a bit different. Young women have a pretty narrow window of how we are expected to dress to look adequately professional. Young women are asked a lot more questions about their experience than young men. And we have to be extra careful in terms of cultivating an image that helps us present ourselves as qualified for office. The first few months I was campaigning, I had somebody reach out to me every other day to give me tips on makeup or my hair or what I should be wearing. Zwiener says she also faced pushback for not living in her district in recent years. Although she'd previously lived in the area, she moved for a time to pursue an education. She says this issue affects all younger millennials. If we attack folks for not being still in one place for a long time, what we're effectively saying is that young people who often travel for their studies don't deserve a place at the table. Dan Crenshaw is another millennial who won his race in the Texas midterms. He's a former Navy SEAL who's become nationally recognized for appearing on Saturday Night Live. Lieutenant Commander Dan Crenshaw, everyone, thank you so much for coming. Thanks for making a Republican look good. <laughs> now Crenshaw's headed to Washington to represent District 2 around Spring, Texas. He says he wants to bring attention to the needs of veterans and the interests of national security. National security issues and intelligence issues, uh, defense issues, those are things that can't be taught, can't really be researched for a variety of reasons. One, it's extremely complex, and two, it's, a lot of it's classified. Uh, so it's not as if you can go online and, and, and research these topics and become better policymaker as a result. You really need experience. Crenshaw will be among a handful of young faces new to Congress. His message to all politicians is that millennials do more than most give them credit for. And everybody says, don't bother talking to millennials. They don't vote. And maybe that's true, but frankly, I enjoy it. And they are the future. So I think it, it behooves us to, to talk to them. As for how exactly millennials will change politics from the inside, we may just have to wait until they officially take office. I'm Brooke Schoberg for the Texas Standard. He's back here in the studio, folks. Our social media editor, Wells Dunbar. What are uh, Texans talking about on this Monday? Well, as we've been discussing, the Affordable Care Act was declared unconstitutional this weekend. It right. is still in effect, and we are hearing about its effect on uh, many people, our friends and listeners, uh, through social media. On our Facebook page, Bob Seinkowicz says, I am self-employed, and health insurance under the ACA has been much more affordable for me than it was before. I hope this decision is overturned on appeal. He goes on to say, I honestly don't know why someone wouldn't want health insurance, but under the current law, they don't have to buy it. Why didn't Ken Paxton, who led this charge to uh, declare it unconstitutional, leave it alone so those of us who truly need affordable health insurance can still have it? He notes that premiums are actually down uh, in 2019. I think it's the first year uh, mm -hmm. maybe That's since uh, the marketplace has been in effect. Are we hearing from any listeners who like the idea of what the judge well, did it's, it's interesting. We are getting some uh, nuanced reaction here. I like this comment here from Alexandra Trojanowski. She says, I wanted Obamacare to work so bad you cannot imagine. She says, at 37, when it passed and with an active job and lifestyle and no chronic health conditions, I knew mm -hmm. people like me were what was needed to float the whole thing for the less healthy. And yet there was never a single plan, even with the supplements offered to me, where I could have gotten any of my minor medical needs like sore throats, earaches, taken care of. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. until I already had to spend four to six thousand dollars in premiums oh. and deductibles just yeah. to get down to that lower copay right. number. She right. says uh, she goes on to say that Obama tried to do something. I will give him that, but what we need is a real public option. Another sort of uh, conversation point, pivot point coming out of this uh, big news that broke in Fort Worth over the weekend. Yeah, you know, in fact, uh, there's there's even more news apparently. Yeah. Something you were telling me about just a few minutes ago. Yeah, apparently Greg Abbott in a statement to the Dallas Morning News, yeah, seems to have broken pretty recently, saying that they're working on, uh, or he uh, will be urging, I, I suppose, the legislature when they gavel in uh, very shortly in the new uh-huh. year to work on some sort of uh, replacement. You know, it, it's been this article of faith that uh, you know Obamacare is this bad thing among Republicans and we need to repeal it, but yet we've seen so many uh, of its popular features, such as the protection for people with pre-existing conditions. Uh-huh. Republican lawmakers come out in support of that, so that appears to be what Greg Abbott is doing here, sort of teeing this up, saying that, hey, our attorney general got this thing defeated in court, but yet uh, I still want to see those protections for people with uh, pre-existing conditions and other, you know, some of the other popular uh-huh. things like staying on your parents' insurance, etc. Well, sure. it's interesting. Uh, the headline, folks, if you're looking for it, it's uh, DallasNews.com. It's uh, Governor Abbott says Texas will make passing own state health care law a priority as Obamacare lawsuit continues. Abbott so, Care. You think that you think that URL is available? <laughs> AbbottCare.com? I think I know who's going to go looking for mm. it right after the show is over. Alas, uh, our broadcast is up for this uh, Monday. But the news continues online at TexasStandard.org. Mr. Dunbar is going to be back. I'm going to be back. We hope you can join us. On behalf of the entire Texas Standard crew, I'm David Brown wishing you a marvelous Monday. Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Woldridge, Adrian Killam, and the George Huntington family. PRI Public Radio International.